Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 223, Venality or Vitality. Just to remind you that I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. If you want to see the smorgasbord of delightful casts available, just hop along to agorapodcastnetwork.com and have a look around. So, on June the 15th, 1520, Pope Leo X issued the papal bull Exorge Domine, Arise, O Lord. The bull threatened an obscure German Augustinian monk with excommunication and described his teachings as deadly poison. Today, we're going to start a couple of episodes about the Reformation. Firstly, today, we're going to talk about the church in England at the start of the 16th century. And then next week, we'll come to the dramatic and timeless story of Martin Luther and move on to cover the early response in England to those events. Now, I don't know how you feel about the news that we've reached the Reformation, but I imagine there are a number of possible responses to this news. They might range from, oh no, not the Blessed Reformation again. Didn't we do this all in school? Please, let's get back to the finer details of Henry's groom of the stool, shall we? All the way through, maybe to, oh goody, and in the 500th anniversary of the 95 Articles too. Bring it on! Well, I would like to say three things before I launch on the topic. Firstly, whether you like it or not, religion will be a central part of the story for many years. The keenies among you at the front will probably stick up your hands, just about now, and tell me that since the end of pagan Britain, it's been impossible to separate religion from politics anyway, given the central part religion played in everybody's life. And of course, as always, you keenies at the front are absolutely correct. But even more overtly, religion will be part of domestic politics and even, arguably, lead to civil war in England. It will be a principal driver of foreign policy and it will be instrumental in forging a new English identity that will last at least until the 20th century. What I'm saying is, it's important and understanding the background to the Reformation will help. The second thing I wanted to say is for me to urge you to love the subject. For the better part of six years now, we have been speaking of a Europe in which the biggest, central, unchanging fact was a single Christendom. Yes, there have been Barneys along the way. Yes, that unity was shaken by the Cathars, the Waldensians and the Hussites. But despite all the trouble and strife, Europe has been not just a collection of kingdoms, but a single thing, Christendom, owing allegiance to a single institution, the papacy. That unity is about to be shattered, and Europe will never be the same again. 
I don't want to get into an argument about whether the Reformation was less or more important than European colonisation and exploration or the development of the nation-state or anything like that, or we'll find ourselves in an argument that involves the definite article. But we can surely agree that this is an absolutely fundamental change, and it will affect the daily lives of men and women in England. The third thing is a warning. The Reformation is still a hot topic, and I don't just mean it's popular, though it is, because especially with the 500th anniversary thing, the number of Reformation-related books has gone absolutely potty. Nope, what I mean is that there is a genuine itchy and scratchiness out there amongst academic historians. Quite a bit of pinching under the table going on, a bit of stabbing in the back with sharpened pencils. The issue is that with Reformation studies, there is of course a direct link to our own religious beliefs. The squabble has even earned itself a name, confessionalism. This is an accusation from some historians who shall remain nameless, but in fact include Dermot McCulloch of Number 2 Acacia Avenue, to other historians who shall remain nameless, but in fact include Eamon Duffy of Number 3 Acacia Avenue. The accusation is that they are motivated by a desire to promote the glories of Catholicism and besmirch the foundations of the Reformation, rather than seek out light and truth. While trying to keep myself carefully aloof from such accusations, I might agree with one of the statements McCulloch makes that keeping personal allegiances out of history would be a good thing, and that arguing that the Reformation was a bad, capital B, thing, capital T, is a bit of a waste of time. It's a little late now. And the point is surely to understand its impact. But I might point out that passionate argument about the meaning and benefit of the English Reformation has always been one to set the teacups rattling. Now, you lucky History of England members have a shedcast coming your way on the historiography of the English Reformation, so we'll be able to discuss this a little bit more. For you less lucky people, but still lucky, I should point out that the corridor that is the history of the Reformation is lined with polemicism, with more or less self-interested cases and arguments built to demonstrate one or the other case. Somewhere between, on one extreme, that Protestantism freed the people of England from a man-made venal system of hypocrisy and lies, to the Reformation was hated by the people, brought no benefit, and was anyway conceived in greed and the interests of the rich rather than in spiritual renewal. All points in between for the more balanced. So, you know, plenty of opportunity for awkwardness at the odd tea party. The whole historical debate in its more lucid moments has a few themes at this early stage that are worth bearing in mind, because they'll keep coming up again and again. There are billions of themes, of course, but let me highlight just three. Number one is whether the English Reformation was top-down or bottom-up. Would it have happened anyway, because all the people had been convinced and would have forced their leaders to change at some point? Or was it always, in fact, reversible, because it was basically a reasonably shallow political top-down thing? Number two is about whose Reformation was it anyway, accepting that the English Reformation is at least partly driven by politics. Was this Henry's Reformation, or was it Thomas Cromwell's? Who's driving the bus? Number three is about when this Reformation happened. The idea that England's Reformation takes many years, and you might argue isn't actually finished until the Glorious Revolution of 1688, and that in fact what we should talk about is a number of Reformations. And finally, in this preamble, I had better declare myself, especially in the light of the confessional history spat, although I think I may have already done this in episode 210. 
I don't consider myself a particularly religious man, more your agnostic type, but I was brought up in the Anglican tradition and have more than a passing respect and liking for the church. I will sweat and I will strain not to let it show or to colour my opinions, and you all have my permission to shout at me when I stray from the straight and indeed from the narrow. Before we start, let us also clarify some terminology. It is too early in this conversation to talk about Protestants. The term is loaded with the spirit of revolt and schism, and was a term that arose from the Diet of Speyer when the Lutheran princes of Germany lodged a formal protest with the emperor against the conclusions of that diet in 1529. In these early days of the 16th century, there was no desire or expectation that anything even remotely approaching schism, good Lord, perish the thought. So, from here on, we're going to use the word evangelicals for those in these early years who will later become Protestants. As a word, evangelical is first written down in English by John Wycliffe and therefore has good reformist provenance. It comes from the Greek root for good news, a real focus for the later Protestants as the emphasis on the Bible and written word becomes predominant for them. Nothing is permanent, and usually I try to avoid such mathering, but here it's symbolically important, I think. It makes the point that in these early years, at least, theologies and opinions of many were very, very fluid, that people expected reform, not schism. In England, it will take until 1559 for lasting theological decisions to be made. Many people and historians also use reformers or reformists, and that's fine, but again, to a degree, everyone was a reformer at that stage. So, to begin at the beginning. Well, actually, there are many theories and opinions about where the beginning lies, so it's very hard to find where the beginning is. Where should we look for the roots of this? Well, the traditional answer is to point the finger at the state of the church, because you did not need to be a heretic to realise that the church needed much reform. One historian called Owen Chadwick wrote some decades ago that everyone that mattered in the Western church was crying out for reform at the time, which is true, except that the crying out needs to be extended to towns and restricted from the Pope, who by and large, and with the odd exception, seemed to think everything was fine. Could we please get on with the real business of fighting wars and patronising art? To give you a flavour of the crying out, let me take you to the English Convocation of the Clergy of Canterbury in 1512, Okay, This convocation was addressed by John Collett. I know that Collett's name will sit easily on the cherry lips of the History of England listeners since we've mentioned the lad before now and on the Shedcast too. Collett was the Dean of St Paul's Cathedral. There is nothing even vaguely of the heretic about Collett. He was one of England's finest scholars of the new learning, but doctrinally he was every inch a Catholic. He described heretics as men mad with strange folly. He was a cleric, and so can hardly be given the tag anti-clerical in the sense given to the laity. He wasn't anti-clerical, some of his best friends were clerics, as it were. So, you are there at the convocation. Up comes the highly respected John Collett to enlighten you in some aspect of faith. And what you get is this. We are come together today, fathers and right wise men, to hold a council, in which what you will do and what matters you will handle I do not yet know. But I wish that at length, mindful of your name and profession, you would consider the reformation of ecclesiastical affairs. For never was there more necessity and never did the state of the church need more endeavours. For the church, the spouse of Christ, 
which he wished to be without spot or wrinkle, is become foul and deformed. As saith Isaiah, the faithful city is become a harlot. And as Jeremiah speaks, she hath committed fornication with many lovers, whereby she has conceived many seeds of iniquity, and daily bringeth forth the foulest offspring. Oh, by heck, steady on Collie, lad. We've only just had our dinner. In this passionate sermon, Collett identifies some of the main problems with the church. Priests were often far too worldly, puffed up with pride, as he might call it, rather than imbued with the spirit of humility demanded by Christ. They took part in the normal activities of the noble laity, hunting, feasting, just like any lay lord. They accumulated riches, and often did that by holding down multiple posts at the same time. Pluralism. The problem with that was not just the wealth thing, but also they couldn't hope, of course, to be in more places than one at the same time, time turners not being available to muggles, and therefore they would necessarily be neglecting some of their jobs. And they were getting involved in secular politics too, far too much, is what they claimed. This is an accusation of particular relevance to bishops. Collett objected to nepotism, church appointments made not on merit, but because of who you knew, and specifically given to family members. Meanwhile, within a few years of Collett's sermon, all he had to do was take a look at Cardinal Wolsey, and there, in one man, surely lay all the sins of the church. So, this looks like an open and shut case, doesn't it? Here we have a man of his time tearing his church to shreds. Add to this the polemics of the early evangelists. So, Simon Fish in 1529 wrote a 16-page pamphlet called Supplication for the Beggars which described the English church as utterly corrupt from top to bottom. It contrasted the wealth of the church with the condition of the poor, hence the title. Fish raised theological objections to the idea of purgatory and to the sale of indulgences, but we'll come to those later. Basically, it seems like a simple story to say that the late medieval church was rotten, that when the English people laid a finger on its rotten beams and gently pushed... It crashed to the ground and disintegrated under the weight of its own corruption. But it does seem not unreasonable to ask, how deep did those objections to the church actually go? How well-founded were they? What was the late medieval church like? Was it really as rotten as later Protestant authors claimed? Henry himself, or Cromwell, depending on your point of view, would make much of the idea that the church was a state within a state. He would represent the break with Rome as an assertion of royal or indeed imperial rights against a foreign power, the Pope, who was operating the secret army within his house. Was this true? Did the church work in opposition to the king and his state, or was that just a blind, and the break with Rome simply driven by the king's mariage? Well, I'm guessing, but I reckon if we went back in time to say, hmm, 1515, and played a parlour game with the College of Cardinals, asking them to identify the country most likely to declare UDI and break away from the papacy, England would have been way, way down the list. Relatively ignored and unimportant though England was to the papacy, she was one of her most faithful daughters. Heresy had been rare, and when it had occurred, such as with the Lollards, it had been very rigorously crushed. Part of the reason for this was actually that church and state had reached a pretty solid working arrangement by 1500, and an arrangement that was pretty advantageous to the English monarch. The English monarchy and church was a lot more autonomous than it had been in, say, William Rufus's day. The king had almost complete control over major church appointments. He was referred to by the church in almost all legal matters that were not specifically about theology. 
the laws of primunire, which had been a feature since the 14th century, had effectively made sure that the English kings could tax the clergy at will. In return, the church gave not just financial support to the monarchy, but spiritual support. It anointed the monarch with holy oil at the coronation. It established his semi-divine nature. From the pulpit, they helped spread royal propaganda. A quick wander around Westminster Abbey, which even pre-Reformation is basically a royal mausoleum, gives you a physical sign of the closeness of the relationship between king and church. But there were some areas of friction. As we have heard over the last few episodes, the status and reputation of the Pope was deeply tarnished. Not just by its extraordinary wealth and ostentation, but also its deep involvement in temporal politics. And in truth, the Pope was very distant to the vast majority of the people, and in this lay a vulnerability. Their king was much closer to them. The people were to prove much more inclined to accept the king's authority and trust him rather than some faraway pope. One comment I read was that in the English Reformation, the English church submitted itself to the tyranny of a secular leader. Maybe that's true, but maybe most people would prefer an institution they knew and could influence and who was intimately connected with them to something as distant and uninterested as the papacy. Even for men such as Fisher and Moore, allegiance to the Pope was an intellectual thing more than a living emotional connection, and Moore himself probably questioned how much authority one man should have rather than the wider community and traditions of the Church. So, by the 1530s, after all the shenanigans and vagaries of international diplomacy, it's unlikely Henry had a lot of faith in the integrity of the papacy, though earlier in his reign he certainly did. And for many others, the papacy was mainly a symbol. And despite the close relationship in England between church and state, there were areas of friction. One of these was benefit of the clergy, the love child, well, child of Thomas Becket and Henry II. Just to remind you, the idea was that the church had its own area of competence and rights not subject to the crown. They could legislate, for example. Most visibly, Clerics could only be tried by church courts, so, if accused of a crime, the cleric could demand that their case be heard by the church. The fact that there was a parallel legal system that clerics could seemingly escape secular punishment was a major irritant to the laity. The reality was that in a couple of key areas, particularly treason and sanctuary, much of the church power had actually been curtailed. There's no guarantee at all that a cleric would get away easily when prosecuted by the church, any more easily than when prosecuted by the state. But nonetheless, it remained an irritant, not just to the king, but probably more so to the people who saw it happen day to day and leapt to the worst possible conclusions. And the church did not help itself. Rather than acknowledging that this could be an irritant and could look inequitable, it had the arrogance to loudly, actively and passionately defend the benefit of the clergy and its rights. It even defended its right of sanctuary, which gave it little benefit, on the principle that the church should not have to give up any of its rights. Just as priests were set above ordinary people, so the church should have its privileges. It combined this with an increasing willingness to accuse people of heresy, partly fuelled by its continuing campaign to crush Lollardy. Simon Fish reflected this in his supplication for the beggars again. He accused the church of using accusations of heresy to scare people off who took them to task or criticise them. Now, Simon Fish is an imperfect witness, because in the world of axe grinding, he was chief grinder. To say that he had an evangelical agenda would be putting it very mildly. 
But to have an impact, there had to be some truth in what he was saying, and the celebrated case of Richard Hun gives a good example. The Richard Hun affair is worth spending a minute or two on. Put very briefly, Richard Hun was a merchant in London who in 1512 got into a tussle with the church over the payment to have his child buried. They demanded payment that Hun felt was unreasonable, there was a protracted legal wrangle in the ecclesiastical courts, of course. And then Hun was accused of heresy by the church and thrown into the Lollard's Tower of St Paul's Cathedral, where folks suspected of heresy were taken for questioning. The strong suspicion was that this was just a blind, a sort of process of claim and counterclaim, a time-honoured legal technique. Though it has to be said, in a raid on his house, a Wycliffe English Bible had been found. Hun never came out of the Lollard's Tower. He was found hanging in his cell before he could come to trial for heresy and the church declared he'd committed suicide. Just to make sure nobody missed the point, though, about what a bad man the church considered Hun to be, in December 1514, despite his death, the church went ahead with his trial anyway, although his clogs had already been firmly popped. He might have been a little surprised at how little he spoke in his defence, maybe. So they duly declared him a heretic, took his decomposing body and had it burnt at the stake. Ever so slightly ghoulish, ever so slightly insensitive. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Well, by now the tide of protest amongst Londoners was rising fast, fanning a storm of anti-clerical feeling in the city. And at the inquest, a civil affair of course, the coroner and jury refused to accept the suicide story. They pointed out a number of inconsistencies in the evidence and accused a cleric called Horsey with Hun's murder. By now the case was a celebrated example of the arrogance and inhumanity of the church. But Henry VIII stepped in and the case was buried. On the grounds of insufficient evidence, but Horse's resulting release once again sent London potty with anti-clericalism. At this point, Wolsey went on his knees, literally, before Parliament, to beg forgiveness for the Church's actions, but ironically his main purpose was to get the case referred to Rome safely out of the way. Now, this then put the wind up Henry, and he stepped in and said, Oi, I'm the King, I've already made my judgement, keep the Pope out of this. We are, by the sufferance of God, King of England, and kings of England in times past have never had any superior but God. Know, therefore, that we will maintain the rights of the crown in this matter like our progenitors. Is this an early echo of the later royal supremacy? Anyway, Horsey was freed, and Hun's family were left destitute, since the heretic's property and goods were forfeit. The Richard Hun affair is famous because it seems to bring together so many different elements. The laity's resentment of church privilege, anti-clericanism, a certain arrogance in defence of his rights by the church, and the king's belief that the rights of Rome were those of a foreign power that should be restricted. However, all these things are open to qualification. London is clearly not typical of the country as a whole, though while that's true, it's always worth bearing in mind that hated or loathed, and many people loathe it, where London goes, historically speaking, England tends to follow at some point. It's worth noting that, as we'll see, anti-clericalism probably only went so deep, and the fame of the Hun affair tends to overemphasise it. And finally, despite Henry's statement, nobody thinks that he really meant at this stage to break with Rome. No one thinks he had a forward strategy at this point. 
Nonetheless, at very least, the Han affair illustrates the frictions that were constantly present. It shows the opinions that were out there amongst those with influence. So the super summary of all of this was that while there was no road to 1534 and the break with Rome, no shooting war between king and church, there was enough friction and potential for friction for the crown to be able to make accusations about a state within a state and build a publicly credible case against the church. With the bishops, criticisms of the medieval church are more valid. The accusation from people like Tyndale was that the bishops were basically secular men in ecclesiastical clothing, that they were far more concerned with earthly power than they were with spiritual leadership, and they were never there in their diocese carrying out their proper job. And bishops were critical to the healthy running of the church. They were the managers and administrators. They were the main preachers. They were responsible for the education and quality of their clergy. So there is justice in Tyndale's accusations. Late medieval bishops were notable for their ostentation. They were rich and powerful men. I probably don't need to mention Wolsey again as a shining example of all that was wrong with them. The majority of them were not appointments made for religious purposes. They were the king's civil servants being rewarded by a lucrative post. Building projects often seemed to be the most popular part of their work and took precedence over other, more practical activities. It is, though, deeply ironic that many of the problems they faced were actually caused by the king himself, who was constantly calling them back to work for him, for the state, making it almost impossible for them to devote the time they needed to their core role, and therefore laid them open to the charge of absenteeism. But when you look in detail, accusations against the bishops had much less basis in fact. What simply happened was that most bishops established administrations to make sure the machinery ran without their physical presence that in the main, visitations of the church and parishes were carried out. Dioceses were reasonably efficiently managed, and bishops, by and large, made a difficult system work. What it comes down to is that the public appearance laid bishops open to criticism, whether or not the accusations were reasonable or not. And this brings us to the clergy themselves, the parish priests on whom the whole system in the end relied the person who would have the most impact on parishioners' daily lives. So, think back to Collett's sermon at the start of the episode. Was this really what they were like? Accusations abounded that priests were not learned enough to actually understand the Latin of the Mass they were speaking, that others lived with women in defiance of clerical celibacy, others exploited their parishioners financially. Wycliffe had thundered that the sacraments surely could not be administered by immoral priests. Once again, the access to detailed local records and the record of the diocese seems to contradict that traditional story. When the records of the visitations are studied, the detailed reports from the bishop's staff going out to evaluate how the lesser clergy performed, it's notable that the number of actual complaints are relatively low, and that's complaints by ordinary people. There does not seem to have been trouble recruiting priests into the profession, which may be an indication of the popularity and vitality of the profession. Though interestingly, as the evangelicals got going, there is a sign of a significant fall in applications in the 1520s, which reverses that earlier trend. Generally speaking, priests were drawn from the middling sort, yeomen and traders. Without doubt, the number of priests who were graduates was relatively low, and therefore there could be truth in the accusation of inadequate learning. There also seems to be relatively little done about such underperformances did exist so very few priests were removed from their posts, 
Although I guess, again, you could claim that's because they are all brilliantly, superbly magnificent. It's also true to say that formal preaching, which was a great focus of the Reformation and the Evangelicals, was not actually seen as core to a priest's role and often therefore did not happen. That was supposed to be the bishop's job. The whole system of appointments gave priests a real problem. Appointments were seen as property by landholders, and it therefore meant that the poor old priest had to go round politicking if they wanted a new post or a promotion, and spend as much time and effort on that as looking after their parish. Livings could be so poor that it encouraged pluralism, and it encouraged priests to have to go looking for new appointments and promotions. There were probably about 40,000 parish clergy in the early 16th century England. There is plenty of evidence that there was a significant problem with their education and quality. It's equally clear that the standards against which they would be judged, in terms of their moral behaviour, not getting married, the poverty of Christ, being very learned and all that, was very high, poor lands. And meanwhile, they had all these hideous money and patronage issues to deal with. So it's not surprising, maybe, that they fall below those standards. They may not be fair standards. It is also clear that a lot of work was actually going on in most dioceses to educate more priests and educate them better. Things were improving. And, as we've said, the number of complaints were low. So we're left with the same kind of situation, that the problem might have been there, but was very much overstated. But it was visible, therefore, widespread enough to make the church vulnerable to criticism. In defence of the church, it's also been said that there was nothing new here. Bishop Fisher himself, at the time, made this point in the 1520s. Stop moaning. These are old problems. They're being dealt with. Trouble is, they were old problems, but they were still there after all this time. The late medieval church can claim to be hard done by, that it was working to resolve the problems, but their record of actually solving the problems was not very much in their favour. What is clear, though, is that churches were, by and large, well provided for and very well equipped. And you only have to wander around England's churches to see the evidence for the amount of rebuilding of church fabric that went on in the late 15th century. If this is the measure of its quality, and you've got to understand that that means a lot of involvement by local communities, a large degree of cost of time and effort, well then the church could plead not guilty to all charges. That's all very well, your evangelical might respond but that's all just so much window dressing. What's really important here is whether or not the parishioners knew their stuff, whether they knew their liturgy and the story of the Bible. And so how did the laity perform if this is the ultimate test of whether or not the clergy were doing their job? After all, the Mass was now performed behind a rude screen, in a language the vast majority did not know. Preaching was relatively rare. How knowledgeable could the laity be given all these things? Again, there are some pretty robust responses to these accusations. People point to the use of paintings, for example, to tell the story of Christ. Low masses were run by chantry priests, which were much more visible to the laity. There was the use of devotional texts in the vernacular, and the use of images were massively popular and provided a focus for devotion. But evangelicals would insist that without a vernacular Bible, and without consistent and frequent and effective preaching, it was impossible to educate the laity as they should be educated. And there is evidence to support that case. By the late Middle Ages, a good deal of religious activity and belief went well beyond the text of the scripture. 
it seemed to often be that knowledge of the saints was reasonable, but that knowledge of basic theology was not. So this gave evangelicals a target for their criticism that religion had become as much about magic and superstition as it was about the teachings of Christ as revealed in the Bible, and that the use of images was tantamount to their worship. I should at this point mention the vernacular Bible, since it's such a central thing. It's commonly held that the medieval church banned access to the vernacular Bible. But it's a lot more complicated than that. Firstly, the Bible in the vernacular languages was all over the place. Between 1466 and 1522, there were 22 editions of the Bible in German. It was in Italian by 1471, it was in Dutch in 1477... Spanish and Czech in 1478, Catalan in 1492. And it was also available in French, though in truncated versions. And of course the printing press had a big impact in terms of circulation. It's been said that it was the availability of the Bible that caused the Reformation, not the Reformation that increased availability of the Bible. So England was actually an exception in this, because in 1409, as part of the campaign against the Lollards, the Bible in English had been banned. It is also true to say, though, that the church was deeply ambivalent about vernacular Bibles. So at the Council of Narbonne in the 13th century, the church had tried to restrict its access to priests and authorised folks. And in 1607, Pope Paul V was to say, Do you not know that so much reading of the scripture destroys the Catholic religion? Now, this sounds like pure and simple placard-producing censorship, but it really isn't. The church knew that there were many perceived inconsistencies in the Bible and their genuinely held view was that interpreting it was a job for professionals. And they knew they needed to control the messages. So, in 1525, Francis I had the Bible in French banned. At the Council of Trent in 1564, it was decided that vernacular Bibles needed to be authorised for sale or for printing. It is now largely beyond doubt also that involvement with the church by the laity was as vital as ever, if not more so, and that the church continued to play a central and positive part in people's lives. To some degree, people had taken control of their own destinies rather than allowing themselves to be dependent on the clergy. Confraternities, that is religious groups, were more numerous and better attended than ever. Chantries were flourishing, and they speak of the involvement of individual families, and chantry priests were available to serve as acolytes in choirs or as schoolmasters. Pilgrimage was as vital a part of religious life as it had ever been, and probably as part of social life as well, of course. Pilgrimages were massively popular, and they attracted all levels of society, poor and rich, uneducated and learned. It tied in with a mass popular religious culture in the veneration of saints and mystics, such as the mass piety that surrounded the nun of Kent, Elizabeth Barton, who would declare her visions about Henry and his proposed marriage to Anne Boleyn. All this was great, and important to individuals and a cohesive social force, but very open to the charge evangelicals would level against pilgrimages and the veneration of relics. Ah! And the veneration of relics. That they were essentially magic rather than Christian religion. And it's a bit difficult to deny the charge most people went on pilgrimage to begin with to find some miraculous cure to some illness. Another flourishing area of religion was particularly open to criticism, the sale of indulgences 
and the politics of purgatory. The idea of purgatory was that this was a place you went to before you could go to heaven on the basis that all were sinners and needed a period of purification before their soul was in a fit state to proceed to heaven. The late medieval church was obsessed by purgatory as the vast numbers of chantry priests and endowments from wills shows. It's not surprising, actually. Purgatory does not sound like a fun place to be. Thomas More wrote of the dead in purgatory, enduring, Crawl, damned sprites, odious, envious and hateful, despiteous enemies and despiteful tormentors and their company more horrible and grievous to us than is the pain itself. No wonder everyone was terrified and keen to limit the damage by getting yourself an indulgence or endowing masses to be said for your soul to help you acquire the requisite grace to pay for your sins. An indulgence was a piece of paper that recognised the grace earned in return for doing some penance or good work. But you were also offered a financial option. So if you gave money to the church, that counted as a good work, so you could also earn an indulgence that way. The theory of indulgences was based on something called the Treasure House of Merit. This held that the ancient fathers, the apostles and early church fathers, had led such good lives that they had acquired far more merit than they needed. And so they gave it to the church, and the Pope claimed therefore to have management of it. So every time he brought an indulgence, in theory, the Pope called down some of that extra merit from the treasure house. So that itself gave rise to a few questions. How much merit exactly was there in the treasure house? Who said the Pope had management of it? Where is any of this mentioned in the Bible? And the idea of purgatory itself was a little bit unclear. So how long did you stay there? And how would you know? Did souls stay in the same state when they entered? Or could they grow in grace while in there? This might seem like an academic question, but actually it was pretty important because it affected your strategy. If you could not grow in grace in purgatory, then you would be best to invest your hard-earned cash by getting an indulgence before you died. If you could acquire grace during purgatory, then buying masses from chantry priests would be a better idea for yourself and indeed for your dead relatives. The whole area was open to abuse and misinterpretation, essentially. Some priests claimed that all you had to do was give them a penny and a soul went straight from purgatory into heaven. In the indulgence crisis of 1517, it was claimed that you could buy indulgences for future sins you hadn't committed yet. Neither of these were sanctioned by the church. Most of all, it led to what would be called the bookkeeping of the hereafter, a sort of double-entry bookkeeping approach to whether you were saved or not. And it was obsessive. And it could be expensive. So, to the conclusion... It is satisfactorily agreed by most historians now that the late medieval church was far from moribund in the way that the Protestant histories had it. Confraternities and chantries flourished. Devotional literature was more popular than ever, as were pilgrimages. Churches were being rebuilt all over the country. Awareness amongst church leadership of the problems that beset the church was high, and its action was being taken. There's no guarantee that it was enough, or that it would work, but the church was not sunk in a slough of complacency. The relationship between church and monarch in England was very close. So, this is all great news, isn't it? No problem, religion. We are away and clear. No reformation today, Zerg. We are not at home to Mr. Reformation. The reformation was all Henry's fault. Sadly, we must prepare the guest room for Mr. Reformation. 
the church was nonetheless beset with vulnerabilities. There were failures in its clergy. The bishops were under pressure. There are many areas of theology which would prove a rich vein to evangelicals and would strike an answering chord amongst ordinary people. The assertion that the whole politics of purgatory was a huge confidence trick and that by adopting Luther's view of justification by faith alone they need never worry about again would come as a massive relief to many. The opportunity to directly access the word of God through a vernacular Bible would excite and inspire. One historian said that all of these issues had been around for centuries and cannot explain the Reformation because a constant can't cause a change. That sounds terribly clever, but is it really true? I've had the constant of an insurance claim for the last year, for example. At some point, I'll have had enough and get a lawyer involved. And anyway, this collection of constants would prove to be a catalyst for some of those who did then hear of something new when Luther came to light the blue touch paper. Okily dokily, so next week we will hear about the challenge that arises suddenly, as if from nowhere, to spread the deadly poison through the church's body politic and how Henry and his church in England respond. So, welcome to the Reformation, ladies and gents. Thank you to all of you for listening and for your comments on iTunes and the website, Facebook, and all the grand panoply of social media. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.